102.5 FM, KXSFLP, San Francisco, and KXSF.FM. You're tuned in to Spark, informing minds, inspiring ideas, igniting innovation. Let the conversation sink into your soul. This is Kelly Marlowe, host of Spark. Imagine living in a country where people are only focused on power, status, and appearance, as well as manipulating others for personal gain. It would be all about winning, material growth, and exterior facade. This would make a very lonely existence. Some researchers are finding that America is heading in this direction. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Romani Drivasula, a leading expert on narcissism. She will share what narcissism looks like and how it impacts us, in particular, in our relationships and how we connect with others. Thank you for joining me on Spark today, Dr. Romani. Of course. Thank you for having me. What is narcissism and why can it be a disorder? So narcissism is actually a pattern. It's a personality pattern. And it's characterized by a lack of empathy, entitlement, grandiosity, validation and admiration seeking, arrogance, often a need to be very controlling, a lot of uh, dysregulation like anger and rage when the person is frustrated or disappointed or um, stressed in some way. They don't basically they don't get their way. They're um, they're very sensitive to criticism. There's a lot of hypocrisy, one set of rules for them, one set of rules for everybody else. That's sort of the general, the sort of the broad strokes of what narcissism is. Now, the disorder that's associated with it, it's called narcissistic personality disorder. And a lot of people out there are under the misassumption that narcissism in and of itself is a disorder. It's not. It's a description of someone. It's no different than calling someone, for example, stubborn or um, I don't know, difficult or something like that. It implies something, but it's not in and of itself a clinical diagnosis. In order to get a diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder, you would need to be seen by a person who is qualified to make such a diagnosis. And it's really based on a lot of the patterns I just talked about, but they have to be very pervasive. They have to present across a variety of relationships and they have to be causing that person problems in their their lives, their relationships or their jobs. So there's a difference. Is it more common now than before? You know, what is happening is people are talking about it more. If I were to hazard a guess, I think that these difficult patterns are actually sort of having their day in the sun now. And what I mean by that is that I think platforms like social media, I, don't, I do not think they've created narcissism. I think they've given them a place to proliferate. It's like a Petri dish. It's like a place for this stuff to grow. So folks who are difficult, narcissistic, antagonistic, they're able to get, garner attention on social media or on reality television really sort of puts these people on a stage and says, look how great, these are difficult people. Then they become influencers, then they make a lot of money. And so I think we've given platforms for this kind of behavior and in that way, normalized it and we've enabled it. And in that, it also what's happened is we see that then it trickles into all kinds of important spaces in our world into leadership, into other people who have positions of authority, your boss. It could be a, a person who has any kind of power in a, in a society. We're often seeing that there's more narcissism concentrating up there. Well, what that means is those folks make the rules. And as a result, these patterns often don't get called out. And in fact, the people who call them out 
are often the ones that are getting labeled as problematic or difficult. But these problems are no, these patterns, these narcissistic patterns are no joke. They really do take a psychological toll on people near them. But I do think it is on the rise because I think we're giving it more and more permission and more and more of a platform. Is it because of social media? And as you pointed out, the reality shows where people seem to think that that is the norm to talk about yourself and your problems and show that fame is great, and especially when you put yourself out there? I think that it's not quite that simple. So all of us are watching this nonsense, right? We watch these reality shows, and it's almost like watching uh, something and thinking, God, I'd never want this to be happening to me. I would never want to be this person. So I think that idea that these shows that celebrate egocentricity and entitlement and grandiosity and honestly and the darker side like really being cruel to other people like being really critical and saying mean-spirited things almost on the level of bullying we've turned that into entertainment i don't know that we've fully normalized yet like i don't think anyone's walking around saying the conduct of somebody who's being very toxic on a reality show is normal but we've given it a platform which means people who have these tendencies now have a way to honestly sort of profit from them and harness them. But for most healthy people, they look at that conduct, and maybe for a minute they'll even be entertained by it, but they do know it's unacceptable. So I don't think that a person who's already healthy, empathic, compassionate, self-reflective, I don't think that person is all of a sudden going to kind of go for lack of a better way, kind of go and turn themselves around and become this kind of a person, they're going to say, I can't do this. I wouldn't want that. I wouldn't want people saying those things about me. So I, like I said, I don't think that, I don't know that I'd say that social media and reality TV created this. I really think what they've done is given voice to it and given a platform for it and really financially rewarded people who are like this. Is it a disorder that wasn't identified before and it's something that can be diagnosed now? So narcissistic personality disorder is something that only came into the DSM in around the 1970s, 80s. It's a relatively recent addition to the diagnostic manuals. And if you, I mean, not to belabor it and sound like a college professor, which I am, but not to belabor it, but the history of narcissism is actually kind of short. It was really only talked about for the first time in the early 1900s by people like Otto Rank and Sigmund Freud. And then really only psychoanalytic people talked about it. And then as we got into like the 1960s and 70s, people like Otto Kernberg and Heinz Kohut talked about it. And then it got put into the diagnostic manual. So it was not treated as a diagnosis for quite a long time. And even now, the rates of the actual diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder probably sit someplace between 3 to 6%. Yet, yet, this pattern of narcissism seems to be happening a lot more. It's, it's a lot more widespread. So it is only an issue, like most of mental health, a lot of these issues have only been talked about in the last 100, 150 years. And narcissism is even sort of newer on the scene. But people were always kind of talking about it. However, the way we're now understanding it is becoming something that's very useful for people to understand who are in toxic relationships. I'll be frank with you. I think until about the last 10 or 15 years, people who are in toxic relationships really felt that they just had to shut up and put up and there was nothing to be done. And this was just their bad luck. I think now work by people like me and many others in the field, we're all saying like, no, this isn't okay. A person's life shouldn't be sort of a human sacrifice to the toxic behavior of another. I want to circle back to that because the thought that came to my mind was that maybe people don't even know that they're dating a narcissist. 
I think I've dated narcissists. And at the time, I probably didn't even know the person was a narcissist because I didn't know what that looks like, right, and right. how unhealthy it is. And right. they do have some positive traits where they make you feel a certain way. They tend to be charming and mm -hmm. they have qualities that draw you in. And that's what makes them appealing at the start. Mm -hmm. So I do want to circle back to that. But I do want to ask you first, how does someone become a narcissist? So narcissism is very much a byproduct of development, quite frankly. And there's a lot of different ways it happens. And I think one of the big challenges is that not all narcissists are created in the same way. Some people wonder, are people born like this? And the answer to that is probably no, that this really happens as a function of what happens to a person in their childhood. But like I said, not all patterns are the same. For a subset of people, their narcissistic personality, their lack of empathy, their, you know, their entitlement, their often mean bullying behavior may very well have a traumatic origin. They may have very well grown up in spaces where they were honest physically or sexually abused or actually abused as kids, or they were tremendously neglected, or there were a lot of losses early in their life. And so basically they had issues with a pattern we call attachment. So it's a proportion of narcissistic people are either a byproduct of these sort of traumatic origins or these attachment issues. Then there are sort of the spoiled child narcissists. These are the kids who really grew up in environments where they kind of got anything they wanted or any experience. They got to go on vacations and theme parks and the latest gadgets and all of that. So all of those needs were getting fed, but the child's emotional needs were not getting met. So the parents would buy, buy, buy and give, give, give but there was very little attempt to sort of be emotionally present with the child. The child never really learned to emotionally regulate. There was a spoiled child, I want, I want, I want. They'd get, they'd get, they'd get. The parents often wouldn't be tight on the rules, and that meant the child didn't learn to regulate. So that's another pathway it sort of happens. I kind of call that over and under indulgence. Some kids get narcissistic from watching a very entitled, privileged parent. They watch their parents plow through the world, bully teachers, bully coaches, bully hotel clerks, bully everyone, store clerks, and the kid watches that. Now, while most kids actually are kind of appalled by it, a subset of kids learns it, and they learn it, and then they sort of practice, but like most of us do, we practice a lot of what we saw in childhood. And then some of this is bigger than just the parenting piece, because there are plenty of people out there who might be parents listening to this saying, you know what, this wasn't how my kid was parented. They are a raging narcissist now. We really, really did right by them. And I agree with that, because I think with some kids, they're kids that are actually born with a somewhat difficult temperament. They're more oppositional. They sometimes are more, they act out a lot more behaviorally. And those kids sometimes come up against the world, teachers and other people who actually really don't like them. That kid who won't sit still and all of that. Those kids often have a rough time. And against an invalidating world, those kids can become narcissistic. And then finally, we also have other issues like society enables these patterns. So the kid who's really, really good at something, I don't know, really good at basketball or soccer or school or ballet or just really just attractive, that kid can behave badly and sometimes get away with it because they themselves sort of bring a value add to the table and they see that enabling pattern. And then finally, in some parents, they just make their, they, the children, the children end up almost getting infected with their parents' needs. And by what I mean by that is the child who consistently goes up to a parent and says, you know, mommy, daddy, whomever, I'm, I'm, I'm really feeling sad. And the parent, instead of saying, honey, what's up? Tell me what's going on. Let's talk it through. The parent will then say to the child, oh, you're sad. Now mommy's sad. And if that happens enough during a childhood, 
that child doesn't get well differentiated from their parent, and that also can be a risk for narcissism. So some of these paths people go through and don't. In fact, most people go through these paths and don't become narcissistic. But all of these paths put people at risk for narcissism. It's the way they've been taught in terms of how to emotionally respond, it sounds like. What if you're told that you're beautiful constantly throughout your life or that you have everything? Does that help to create that sense of narcissism? So so with a child who's always told, you're a beautiful child, beautiful adolescent, go into beautiful adulthood. What's so sad for that child and then ultimately adult is that they've learned that the world has sort of related to them as though their value comes from only one place, not the depth of them, but this one superficial characteristic. Now, not every child who's told they're beautiful will become narcissistic. This is all about, it's all like a horse race, right? It's all about betting. But there's a much greater likelihood that that person may not have had to develop the same kinds of emotional regulation, the same kinds of emotional responses, the same kinds of empathic responses, because they could fall back on, well, I'm beautiful. And that could result in a very superficial, unempathic kind of an individual, and that's narcissism. But like I said, that's not always how it goes. There's some people out there who are always told they're beautiful and still manage to still work on that emotional piece or experience other clinical issues like anxiety from recognizing that the world almost rec- treats them as a one-trick pony and beauty is a depreciating asset, right? This person gets older, the world is going to value that less. So there's a real anxiety as this one thing they're valued for flips away. Yes. You have talked about four types of narcissism. Are these four types tied to what you just described that stems from the childhood experience? Yeah. So I'd actually say there's probably, we're really more, as we do a deeper dive and look at how this all subtypes, these sort of four types I'd originally talked about were sort of grandiose, covert, malignant, and communal. But we also realize there's some other types out there, like more of a neglectful, almost aloof, doesn't even notice you narcissist. There's a very self-righteous, moral narcissist. They don't tend to be the liar, cheater, but they're the ones who are always imperious and kind of dominate people with their I'm right and you're wrongness. These types of narcissism absolutely develop, though, differentially, depending on what happened to that person as a child. The covert narcissist may actually have been the type, this is more of a vulnerable, victimized, sullen, resentful, not grandiose, not charming, not charismatic narcissist, that subtype may very well have originated more from that kind of neglectful, potentially abusive childhood. That can come from there. So they're still very grandiose, but in a, I'm the best, but no one ever noticed it, and I deserve so much better of a life than I've got. Would one be able to recognize that he or she is a narcissist? Oh, I absolutely think it's possible. It's hard. Because narcissism in and of itself is really characterized by a lack of self-reflective capacity. Fancy way of saying these people don't really have a lot of insight. They don't stop to think about how they affect other people with their words and with their behavior. So that would mean that they're also much less likely to say what I'm doing isn't cool or I'm not a nice person. The place where people often have that revelation, like maybe this is me, sometimes it's by watching online content, but uh, sometimes it's because somebody actually calls them out and they'll take a minute, so they'll argue the point first. But other times it's really because they've kind of hit a rock bottom. 
their relationships have ended, they get fired, they may be facing lawsuits, nobody wants to talk to them, they've become estranged from their family, and they start looking around and realizing everyone's gone. And for a minute, they might say, everyone's out to get me, everyone's hate me, hates me, nobody understands me. But then there's a minute where they realize, and maybe it's me. At that moment, you might have people saying, yep, this is me. However, then you got to do the work. And the work addressing narcissistic personality patterns, it's not easy work. Can it be done? Yes. Is it a unicorn to see someone fully come back from this? Yes. I can't tell you of many cases I've seen where a person really went from very narcissistic to like really sweet and compassionate. The best we can hope for is a narcissist who recognizes the harm they do to other people and maybe steer clear from relationships or learn when to leave the room or walk away. But that's not the kind of thing that's going to make a long-term relationship work. If somebody keeps getting up and leaving and saying, I can't handle this, I can't handle interpersonal stuff, I don't have enough empathy, and I know that, it's kind of hard to build up empathy as an adult. It's sort of something we learn in childhood. It sounds like because you are unable to empathize and you're unable to self-reflect, that it's really difficult then to see your own diagnosis and then be able to fix it? Well, I'd say it's difficult to sort of be self-reflective on who you are because you're so defended. It might be too complicated for the conversation we're having here, but I'll try, I'll try to make it very simple, is that a person who's narcissistic at a very, very deep, unresolved, unconscious level, there's a constant fear that they're almost going to get found out. This anxiety brews in them that somebody's actually going to see their deficits. When those deficits get aired, I don't know, they don't win the game, they don't get the promotion, they don't do well on the test, their partner leaves them, whatever it looks like. What ends, or they get called out in public for cheating or lying or whatever. When that bubbles up and they get noticed, instead of saying, I'm so sorry, I take responsibility for my actions, they will actually, that shame will come up. They'll feel ashamed for finally being sort of seen. And they don't take responsibility. They lash out at the people who pointed it out. They blame other people for what happened. They engage in a lot of rage, either direct rage or very passive aggressive kinds of stuff, or they hold a grudge for a really long time. You can see how that makes change really, really hard because they are very rarely willing to take responsibility. They're always deflecting blame. That's somebody else's fault. That's the people's fault. That's my family's fault. That's my parents' fault. It's somebody else's fault. There's never that ability to say, you know, I take responsibility for this part. They may even be able to say, like, what, what could be healthy is, like, I came from a really rough family. However, I've got to do the work and recognize my actions as an adult are my own. They won't take that stance. They'll say, I came from a rough family, so you really can't hold me to the same standards as everyone else. The rules don't apply to me. It's hard to make change under those conditions. Interesting. It sounds like there's a lot of this going on in politics. <laughs> oh, heck yeah. And you know what it is, too, is that in politics... What is politics, right? you got to get votes. What are votes? Votes are validation. So they're actually in the validation getting business. And the way politics has gone lately, it's become such a toxic space of putting other people down and lifting yourself up on the basis of polarization. Narcissistic people love polarization. They love polarization because it creates chaos. What we're seeing in American politics, and, and I think actually global politics, is that pol when, when you create polarization, people get really, really strongly, almost blindly adherent to their position, right? And what's interesting is if we take what happens in politics to what happens in a family, 
that if you have a, a family ca- characterized by a narcissistic family member, for example, that the the narcissistic family member is often the one spreading gossip and rumors and innuendo about different person, people in the family. Hey, do you want to know what your sister said about you? Or they'll call one behind the other one's back. And you'll see what that does to a family system. It creates a lot of chaos. And it really does mean that the one person, the narcissist in the family, that's fueling all that gossip is the one who has all the power. Everyone knows that that person knows everything and they think that's their ally. It's the same thing in politics. The more you create polarization, in essence, you play upon things like lack of empathy, you know, that I don't even want to know their point of view. I don't care about their point of view. That's a narcissist ground game. In fact, empathy hurts them in politics because people would actually be trying to understand the other point of view. It would almost be harder to get those votes. But you can really lock down a group of people who are all about you because the, you, the opinions you've cre- are so polarized. And by doing things like passing rumors, telling falsehoods, all of that, it really allows narcissistic politicians and leaders to hold their power even more significantly. And again, that's not just happening in the United States. It's happening all over the world. A lot of people wouldn't recognize, wouldn't be able to recognize that they're in a relationship with a narcissist. What happens when a parent is the narcissist? Okay, so when a parent is a narcissist, it actually really, really negatively impacts a person all the way through into adulthood. First of all, when a parent is narcissistic, it impacts the development of a child, right? If you have a parent who's narcissistic, then by definition, they're egocentric, they're unempathic, they're entitled, and they they look to their child to be things that a child shouldn't have to be. So they look to their child to be, for example, their source of validation. They look to the child's accomplishments as reflective on them. They push the child to succeed in ways that are good for the parent, or the parent may view the child as an absolute inconvenience or a pain in the neck that's getting in the way of what they want to do, and they may neglect or minimize the child. In essence, the parent doesn't make the kinds of sacrifices that a parent needs to make. That's the nature of parenting, because narcissistic individuals just aren't wired for doing that. Well, as a child who grows up like that, that child is always going to feel like they're not enough. What do they need to do to win this parent over? And that can really fuel a tremendous anxiety in that individual through adulthood where they feel like they're not enough and where they feel like they actually choose, they end up choosing adult relationships where they kind of recreate that whole cycle. And I wouldn't even say choose as though it's a it's a very intentional, like they're aware of it. It's as though that there's some sort of almost traumatic comfort in being in a relationship where somebody is constantly invalidating you or manipulating you until you get the wake-up call saying what happened in my family wasn't healthy, what's happening in my relationship is not healthy. So it's not, I mean, listen, people who are narcissistic are basically not made to be parents because there's just too much empathy, self-sacrifice, and compassion required to be a good one. What happens if it's your boss, which is even more common? So when it's your boss, it actually can be really, really problematic. This might be workplaces that are characterized by bullying harassment, having your work or your intellectual property stolen, being asked to work under really unacceptable conditions, having, uh, you know, lots of demands with very little control, feeling like your, your, your work is completely undervalued. It is the kind of situation that people can develop stress-related illnesses around. It can actually ruin a person's career. A person might have worked very hard to get to a certain point, and a toxic boss can come around and throw a 30-year career completely out of kilter. And it happens all the time because 
people who are narcissistic are actually really, really good at climbing the ladder in all kinds of professions because they're really, really good at that charm and charisma game. And because a lot of people, particularly people in leadership, don't understand narcissism, they're able to be played and they'll often advance someone and the, the complaints and the concerns of the rank and file or the, you know, maybe employees that are lower hierarchy of a particular employment situation may feel unheard. And so it really, really can take a toll on a person. And like I said, completely upend a person's career in, in many cases in ways that you, know, you can be recovered from. But there's a handful of cases where having a toxic boss can actually completely throw a career off. Then what happens when it's your spouse? When it's your spouse, it's actually quite devastating because spouse is a, a almost like a parent. It's a very all-absorbing relationship. These are relationships or marriages that are characterized by lots of invalidation, lots of gaslighting, lots of manipulation, lots of entitlement and dealing with rage. Over time, people who are married to or in relationships, long-term relationships with narcissists will feel like they're always walking on eggshells. They never know what's going to set them off. They never know how to get them on board. Narcissistic people will often move the goalposts, change the rules. And where it gets very complicated is if you go on to have children with this person. Because as I just said, narcissistic personality is not conducive to being a good parent. And so as a result, they're not able to be present and aware parents. And so now basically the person in a narcissistic relationship is not only dealing with the rigors of this really invalidating toxic marriage or relationship, they're also dealing with, in essence, being a single parent, but having to deal with the criticism of the other parent. And if a person decides, okay, this isn't working, I want to get a divorce, these are often incredibly expensive painful, sometimes even dangerous divorces, and people struggle with it because they say, I don't want my child to spend half their time or a significant part of their time with this other parent who isn't, who doesn't always feel up to the job. So a lot of people stay in these marriages for the long term. There's also a lot of, as you can imagine, cultural and religious and financial reasons that people stay in marriages. People have their reasons. So people might find themselves staying in these toxic relationships for a lot longer than they wanted to for any number of reasons. It takes a toll on people's health. I have worked with many people who are 20, 30, 40, 50 year survivors of narcissistic relationships. They have long-term health issues, long-term mental health issues. These relationships are not good for people's health. What can we do as a society to dial down narcissism? As a society, we've got to take responsibility. And at some level, there has to be more comfort in calling this out. I mean, we're even seeing people saying, well, yeah, sure, they just said something inflammatory, but I'm sure they didn't really mean it. I said they said it. They meant it. I think that we're very, um, we tend to be almost that kind of rescuey, forgivey, enabley kind of nonsense that happens in, in all kinds of spheres, not just social media, but politics and business and celebrity. We've got to really take a hard look at critical thinking and how we teach, honestly, kids and adolescents who are watching media. I think it's too late for the adults. I mean, I think there's only so much change you can have there. But I don't think we should be shy about really sitting with kids and teaching them what they're seeing and helping them learn how to develop informed opinions, not only on issues, but about people based on evidence. We've got to stop teaching people blind obedience. Like, you've got to respect people no matter what. No, respect is earned. And we've got to teach people that respect is earned in a relationship, in a workplace, 
in a family. And it's all about, well, they're an adult, so they're doing the right thing. They're not. And it does definitely teach kids almost to become disempowered because they're not taking a minute to say, well, is this person behaving in a way that garners respect? We've also got to get much more open and honest about how we teach people about healthy relationships, that a healthy relationship is characterized by respect, commitment, compassion, mutuality, reciprocity, kindness. That's a healthy relationship. But so many people still use the checklist mentality. Got a great job, making a lot of money. This is really exciting, super hot. That's not on that list I just gave you. And until we really sort of rewrite the fairy tales to not be so grandiose and be a lot more soft, a lot more gentle, and a lot more well-paced, a lot of what happens in love bombing is the relationship happens too fast, too intense, very fairy tale, very attention-seeking. We've got to teach people that healthy long-term relationships are grown in a healthy long-term way. And then finally, we've really got to focus on self-regulation. We've got to stop giving such big platforms to people who are dysregulated and screaming and yelling. Platform in our society sadly translates to money. So the people who are behaving the most poorly are the ones who are seeing the most financial gains. That is on all of us to stop looking, to stop buying into that. It's a really, really tall order and to cultivate relationships beyond those just of the superficial spaces of social media. Teach kids how to critically think about social media. All of these things are responsibilities we all bear on our shoulders, not only for ourselves, not only for how we consume information and media, but also how we raise and teach children. Thank you for sharing your expertise, and thank you for joining me on Spark today, Dr. Romani. Oh, I'm so glad. Um, thank you so much. I really do hope it's helpful.